in Tomorrow is Forever when Natalie Wood had to cry on cue and she couldn't cry. The rumor story is that her mother took her aside and ripped apart a butterfly in front of her daughter. And so Natalie Wood started to cry. I'm Rebecca Sullivan. I'm a professor at the University of Calgary, and I'm the author of the first scholarly analysis of Natalie Wood's career. In her adult years, towards the end of her life, in some of her final interviews, she still spoke about how she hated crying on screen, how it caused her such um, internal torment because of the ways in which she had been forced to do that when she didn't want to. Hello, and welcome to Chapter 2 of Fatal Voyage, The Mysterious Death of Natalie Wood. I'm your host, Dylan Howard. In this chapter, we'll examine Natalie's relationship with her mother, Maria, and how that relationship shaped Natalie into the woman she would become, a talented yet anxiety-ridden individual with crippling personal demons that stemmed from childhood. A childhood filled with what many of us would consider neglect by her own mother and abuse at the hands of those around her who stood to benefit from her fame. Also in this chapter, we will examine how it was that Natalie began to take control of her professional and romantic life. For now, let's explore how she got her start in Hollywood. Lana Wood, Natalie's sister, explains... A film company came out there to shoot on the streets. So everybody who lived close by went out to watch a movie being made um, amongst the mud mother and, and Natalie, who was only four. According to legend, no, my, my mom has always said, uh, that the assistant director looked around the crowd and said, we need a little girl, and pointed to Natalie and said, you know, where's your mother? Okay, fine. Can she carry this ice cream cone, walk across the street, drop it, and start to cry? My mom said, of course she can. So she did, and that was her first film. It was the opening of the film. Um, it was called Happy Land with Donna Amici. And um, two years later, the director remembered her and called and said, would you come to Hollywood and test for this role opposite Orson Welles. Natalie Audition landed the role and many after, making her one of the most famous child actors of her time. And although it's entirely possible a child can choose a career in showbiz, for Natalie, at just five years of age, her mother Maria was the woman who truly made it all happen. Hollywood historian and entertainment journalist Scott Hoover shares his view. Nowadays, we have this idea of a momager, um, somebody like a Chris Kardashian that is managing the careers of, of their children or you know Jessica Simpson and her family. But what was happening in the early days of the 20th century as show business was kind of formulating was that it was a beg, borrow, steal, whatever you needed to do to get your offspring to succeed. And Maria Gurdon was, was an expert at that. She knew no bounds and would wheel and deal and beg and plead and all kinds of other things 
um, to really make this a reality. My mom, stardom to her was her deity. My mother controlled Natalie and she would drag anybody through the dirt to keep this fantasy alive. Eventually, Natalie would undergo daily therapy in order to cope with a life so lonely, so isolated, that her therapist was in fact the only person she told her secrets to. Until now, as we have obtained her unpublished memoir, with passages never before seen or heard, letting you hear Natalie, in her own words, talk about the most intimate details of her life. It provides a unique and heartbreaking insight into a woman who outwardly had it all. I had grown up in the belief that my only worth was in connection with my ability to get parts. The universe seemed to hang in the balance when I waited for word of a job. When I think of my early years, it seems as if I spent most of my time auditioning. I was terribly insulated from the world outside the studio. The most important thing in my early years was to win the respect and approval of others. It was only later that I learned that it was equally vital for me to develop self-esteem. Natalie's mother, Maria, was fascinated by Hollywood and projected her dreams of fame onto her daughter, Natasha. I don't know if other people can see it, but I find that you can look at someone on camera or meet them and you can spot the people that really are different. It's the charisma. And Natalie always had it, even when she was a really young child. Um, her baby pictures that I have framed at home, she was holding her head up and she had this amazing look on her face. And I've got my baby pictures where I look like a blob. <laughs> so, I, no, she had, there was, there was a special quality about her. And my mom recognised it. Soon after settling in Los Angeles, two studio executives suggested to Maria that Natalie change her name to something a little more American. And never one to disappoint those who had the power to help her daughter's career, Maria agreed. And Natasha Zakarenko was no more. Natalie Wood was born. And this was just the beginning of the lengths that Maria would go in order to turn her daughter into a bankable star. And one who could ensure her family's financial security. I'm Cynthia Lucia. I'm a professor of English and director of film and media studies at Ryder University. Natalie Wood's mother always has strong control over her daughter's career uh, from the very time she was six years old and, and well beyond. And I think it was a, a, an extremely close relationship but with all relationships like that, there are, I think, you know, resentments, conflicts, um, and I guess the word is, again, deep resentments that form. Maria pushed hard for Natalie's early success, all the while establishing a well-understood and unspoken rule. The movie came first, even if it meant endangering her own life. 
Natalie was on uh, the set of a film she was working on, I believe it was The Green Promise. And they had um, built a little bridge from one side to the other. And the, 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 uh, the guy that was in charge of the special effect got his timing wrong. So Natalie was doing the scene, she got up on the, the bridge and it collapsed with her on it. And she grabbed on and she was in horrible pain, but she finished the scene and the director loved it and she seemed highly upset and teary and my mom drew her aside and looked at it and said, you know, you've hurt your wrist, but we'll take care of it at home. Don't tell anybody. Don't do anything because maybe they won't let you finish the movie. And um, that was it. Nothing was uh, ever done to help the healing of Natalie's wrist. So it, it healed, but it healed improperly. And uh, the wrist bone was protruding. For the rest of her life, Natalie wore a large cuff bracelet. My mother was very terrified that Natalie would show a weakness on a set or somewhere and somehow lose her job. Knowing her daughter's extreme fear of water, which she herself instilled in Natalie, Maria watched on the sidelines as her daughter nearly drowned and then silenced her when she got hurt. Natalie was learning an important skill that would keep her employed in Hollywood. Keep quiet and do what you're told, no matter the cost. We drove her up to the Chateau Marmont and my mother and I sat in the car for hours to the point where I went to sleep. And that was the interview where Natalie was raped. So I'm sorry, your sister was raped? Did she tell your mother when she left the interview? I was asleep in the back seat, and I just remember it was not a happy ride home. I thought I heard Natalie and my mom talking heatedly in undertones. So how did you find out what had happened? Many, many years later, and there again, Natalie only alluded to the fact that something bad had happened, and um, in a way, Blame my mom for being too eager for Natalie to get roles. I mean, it was something that Natalie went through in trying to come to terms with, you know, such a horrendous thing. Particularly that being that young, there again, it's not something that my mom would pursue because you don't want to make that big star angry. You don't want the studio knowing that this occurred. You don't want, she would never have said anything to authorities or anyone. As the adult in this situation, Natalie's mother was faced with a decision. She could either report her daughter's rape or protect her family's livelihood. Remarkably, she chose the latter. And by doing so, she continued to impress upon Natalie that her safety was not a priority. And perhaps that no matter how rich, successful or famous she became, in Hollywood, powerful men always got what they wanted. The rape uh, of Natalie Wood was, from what I've understood, 
quite brutal and quite violent. Uh, she was fearful. And I think she was correct that her career in that day and age would have been ruined had she reported it. And it must have been a very, very difficult, difficult thing for her. Obviously, this had a huge impact on Natalie's psyche. And yet, she kept her true feelings to herself. Speaking out against the abuse of power in Hollywood was something she felt unable to do, or so we thought, until we were able to unearth this never-before-heard interview. I, I think that one of the great uh, horrors of this, this business, and indeed of any other business, is, is this notion of, of, quote, the casting couch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's, it's present in publishing. Uh, and a problem. Mm-hmm. It's obviously present in movies. Do, do you sympathize with, with women and even sometimes men who are put in the position? Oh, sure. Of course, I mean, I think, uh, and I'm glad you said, and of men, because they can be, be in the same sure. spot. I mean, I think any time anybody bullies somebody or or is unfair or, or takes advantage of, uh, of somebody being in a position where they can't, you know, fight back or, or, you know, that's awful. Many child actors would have crumbled under the harsh glare of an overbearing mother a demanding studio system, and the outright disregard of their most basic needs. But to Natalie, that was simply the cards she was dealt. My name is Scott Hoover, and I'm an entertainment journalist. Back in the 40s, when Natalie was starting out and into the 50s as she was coming of age, the Hollywood studio system ruled all. If you were under contract to a major motion picture studio, they they owned you in a sense, body and soul. They also protected you. You really belonged to them if you were under contract to them. You often had dates that were arranged with people who seemed to fit your image. You were you were groomed, you were cultivated. It's very different um, from, from what it's like today. And you just sort of eat, slept and breathed whatever the studio wanted you to do. As a young girl in Hollywood, the this, this studio would say, you're going out with Tab Hunter and you're going to this premiere. And they were friends, but they were not interested in each other. And it was like that a lot. Um, Hollywood um, was more controlled back then. If you had a date, it was generally with someone that the studio would set up so that you could pose for pictures and appear in a movie magazine, which would bring you fans, would then go and pay to buy a ticket to see your movies. But the people that Natalie went out with were people that the studio chose for her. I was surrounded by people, but I felt totally alone. Outwardly, I kept smiling. Inwardly, I wanted to run from the mechanical make-believe world where people seemed like mannequins going through the motions on smoothly oiled parts, but never fully living. Natalie was completely controlled, both on set and off. Whether it was at the hand of her mother or that of the studio system, Natalie had no real say in her own life. But around the age of 16, that was about to change. I think she wanted to grow up in a forceful way because in so many of her adolescent roles, she was costumed as a little girl. When she was uh, 15 or 16, she was 
having a relationship with Nicholas Ray, the director of Rebel Without a Cause, who was then uh, about 40 years old. My name is Tommy Garrett. I'm a Hollywood insider. I will say that at that point in her life, she was the aggressor. Natalie was at that point tired of, um, you know, being used, so to speak, and, and having her mother boss her around and having all these directors on films boss her around. And so she's you know, this was someone she sought after. This is how she wanted to get the role. This empowered her. In her mind, this is me getting what I want for a change. And that helped set her up for everything that came later. I think that those situations either where where a young actress like Natalie finds themselves in a relationship, if, if that's the right word for it, with, with a you know, much older director, it's usually ends up being sort of a transactional thing where that was the the price of getting a, a, an amazing role or it's a Svengali type of a situation which is I think more the case with Nicholas Ray where he was you know grooming her to get the performance that he wanted out of her also she was certainly very beautiful unattractive young woman kind of coming into her sexuality and you know I think he probably took advantage of that fact Obedient to the young age? I was, yeah. Very beautiful. <laughs> when, did, when did you start feeling your own? I think I saw it rebellious right around the time that I did Rebel. I think that, that that movie came along at a time that kind of reflected the feelings that I was beginning to have. That's why I was mm -hmm. yeah. So it was, it, it was coincidental, or do you think you were really influenced by the picture? No, I think that uh, the picture, the script, expressed what I was feeling. Regardless of the fact that people today would absolutely condemn a 40-year-old man having an affair with a 16-year-old girl, not to mention that it's a crime, this was Natalie's own attempt to break free. Free from her mother's unyielding control and free from other people's expectations of her. Natalie was beginning to take control of her life and career and her mother was fading into the background. The studios were now rolling out the red carpet and she was taking full advantage of her new opportunities. The movies, the offers just kept getting better and better. And that's kind of what was happening with Natalie Wood at that time. As she was kind of coming into her own and slowly becoming an adult, Hollywood was opening a lot of doors for her and the public was eating it all up. As, as her career progressed, the material was so good. And I think that increased the audience's investment in Natalie. I think she represented what a lot of them were feeling, going through, hoping to go through. She was there living on screen, these hot button issues that the, that the culture was really starting to embrace or debate or reject. Natalie had become ingrained in our culture, beloved from her time as a child star and now validated as a woman by her turn in Rebel Without a Cause. She became an unstoppable force a singular phenomena unrivaled by anyone at the time. Of course, she was the object of many men's desires, but she only had eyes for one, the man who would become her obsession and the last person to ever see her alive. I first met RJ at age 10. He brushed by me in the studio hallway and never looked back, but I did. I met RJ again when I was 17 for a brief photo session. We smiled at each other, and if there was any memorable dialogue, it escapes me. But a few weeks later, he called and asked me for a date. On July 20th, 1956, on my 18th birthday, 
he escorted me to the screening of The Mountain. The next morning, he sent flowers and a note promising, I'll see you again. Natalie dated um, Nikki Hilton. James Dean came to the house a couple of times and took her out. Who were some of the other guys? Nikki Hilton, Lance Reventlow, various guys, but they were all rather fleeting. It wasn't until RJ came on the scene that I had my uh-oh moment, I'm going to lose my sister. And it's funny because you could, or I certainly could sense at the time that he was different from the other guys that she had dated. It seemed like there was m more intensity. I thought he was very tall. <laughs> I just saw him as a, uh, a person that was coming into our lives and certainly coming into Natalie's life. Natalie was 18 now and still living at home. So was RJ her dream, her escape from a world she clearly was ready to leave? Or was he just another controlling figure in her life? All facts point to there being real affection between the two. But with a powerful Hollywood machine building them up as the ideal couple, if any actual problems existed between them, it was nearly impossible for anyone to detect, including Natalie. In the movies, the happy ending is still popular. The boy and girl walking hand in hand into the sunset. Presumably, they are heading for the altar. But is that the end or the beginning of their problems? On the next Fatal Voyage, we go inside Natalie and RJ's whirlwind romance and see how it spun completely and recklessly out of control. Herbert Wagner was becoming consumed with his suspicions about Natalie and Warren. And at one point, he's, he's admitted in, in his memoirs that he followed you know, Warren Beatty home to his house and he had a gun on him. Fatal Voyage is executive produced and hosted by me, Dylan Howard, and American Media Incorporated. Executive producers also include Callie Garner and Carolina Saavedra from Treefort Media. Editing, scoring, and original music by Tom Monaghan. The series is mixed and engineered by Stephen Cologne. There's so much more to this story, and you don't want to miss anything, that I can assure you. Make sure to subscribe to Fatal Voyage wherever you get podcasts.